Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 13. Last week, I covered the first part of Gideon's story, as found in the biblical narrative, up through his victory over the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people from the east, which got me through to the end of Judges, Chapter 7. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm picking up at the beginning of chapter 8 and pressing forward. Also, there's an important programming note at the end of this episode, so be sure to stick around for that. And with all of the intro done, let's get started. After Gideon defeated the assembled enemies, and they ran in retreat towards their homelands, all wasn't kosher. Recall that at the end of chapter 7, Gideon sent messengers to the Ephraimites, asking them to come down against the Midianites and seize the waters that would allow them to escape, as far as Beth Bara, and also the Jordan. And the Ephraimites came, doing as asked. But, apparently this wasn't enough for them. The Ephraimites said to Gideon, What have you done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against the Midianites. And they chastised him violently. After which Gideon replied, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abizer? God has given into your hands the captains of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? When he said this, their anger against him subsided. Essentially, he told them that they got to participate in the best part of the battle, with the implication that they would get the glory that went along with that. Of course, even over 3,000 years later, we're reading the whole story and no better, but it worked at the time. After this, Gideon went to the Jordan, then crossed over, along with his 300 God-picked, water-lapping troops, who were still with him. But all wasn't well. They all were exhausted and hungry. Actually, not just merely hungry, but famished. Fighting a retreating enemy then having to deal with discord among your brother tribes will do that to you. While still in Israelite territory, he came to the town of Succoth, which was in the territory of Gad. Gideon approached the people of the town asking for some bread to sustain the men while they chafed after Zeba and Zalmunna, both said to be kings of Midian. But the leaders of Succoth were not friendly. They asked Gideon, Do you already have in your possession the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna, that we should give bread to your army? Not that it matters much, but in their defense, they were certainly concerned that Gideon, supported only by his few men, would be easily defeated by the enemy, who then would seek retribution for helping them. So it goes with people of little faith, who are not quite fed up enough with the status quo. Back in the text, Gideon replied, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will trample your flesh on the thorns of the wilderness and on briars. After this, he and his men went up to Penuel, also in the territory of Gad. Once there, he asked them for food, too. Their reply was the same. His retort was nearly the same, but more appropriate for their apparently walled city. 
telling them that when I come back victorious, I will break down this tower. After this, the narrative turns back to the fleeing Midianites. Then, the Midianite kings Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkar with their army, about 15,000 men, along with what was left of the army of the people of the east. What's interesting about this is that the kings were specifically named as being Midianite, but the army wasn't. The grunts were from the still unnamed eastern people, maybe from a tributary nation or perhaps an ally, but not from Midian. Then we're given a bit of insight to what's previously transpired. At this point, they'd already lost 120,000 armed men, presumably as they fled the trumpet-blaring, torch-bearing 300, most likely killed by all of the other Israelites as they tried to retreat. At this point, Gideon traveled up the caravan route east of Noba and Jagbaha and attacked the enemy's army. The text says the enemy army was off its guard, meaning they were surprised, which is about the only way they could have been defeated by a mere 300. Their kings Ziba and Zamuna fled further, with Gideon chasing. He would eventually catch up, then capture the kings, which sent the remaining enemy troops into a panic. It is only after this that we're told the route Gideon took back home, via what's known as the Ascent of Heres. Unfortunately, the exact location of this place has been lost to the passage of time. Likely a road that ran up the side of a notable mountain, just not notable enough for this name to have survived in any outside record. This road led towards the city of Succoth, which is why it was mentioned. Since he was on his return trip, you would expect he would come to the cities in the opposite order from his outbound leg, but he doesn't. They're in the same order, meaning he had to take a different route. To me at least, this adds a slight bit of historical authenticity. A simpler version of the town's order would be easy for someone making up the story from whole cloth. The first city he makes it to is one of the places he stopped seeking provisions before heading to battle. And more notably, one of the places that refused to give him anything, still probably fearing a reprisal from the Midianites, which they thought would surely defeat the vastly outnumbered Gideon. And he vowed to get his revenge. And the time for that was quickly approaching. On his way to the town, he called a young man from Succoth. When he was in custody, Gideon interrogated him. He was particularly interested in the names of the city's leaders. And the young man listed out some 77 people said to be the officials and elders. Gideon then proceeded to the city. When he got there, he said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian, about whom you taunted me, saying, Do you already have in your possession the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna, that we should give bread to your troops who are exhausted? Then Gideon took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he trampled the people of Succoth. There is a footnote in the New Revised Standard that says the word trample can alternatively be translated as taught, which is how the NIV uses it, specifically saying he taught the men of Succoth a lesson, 
by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. The King James splits the baby, and it may be historically a bit too early to use that phrase. Anyway, the King James reads, And he took the elders of the cities and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men a succoth. Whichever one you go with, it certainly wasn't very pleasant. Next up was the city of Penuel, where Gideon and whatever remained of his 300 knocked down the tower, then killed the men of the city. At this point, he turns around and directly addresses the two Midianite kings that are now his prisoners. Gideon asked them, What about the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered him, As you are, so were they, every one of them. They resembled the sons of a king in an overtly apparent attempt to win his favor. Gideon was having none of it, immediately replying, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So, their words were too late and not enough to offset their previous violent actions. Gideon then turned to his oldest son, Jether, telling him, Go kill them. This is the first mention of his son in the text, which isn't terribly surprising, as he's said to be still a boy, likely meaning he was merely an adolescent, not even a teenager, which helps explain the boy's response. Jether was too afraid and did not draw his sword. At this point, one or both of the prisoner kings address Gideon with words that are subject to various interpretations. They told him, You come and kill us, for as the man is, so is his strength. Was it a taunt? Were they being defiant? Or were they going down in their pride? Whichever one you choose, the outcome was the same. Gideon killed them both, himself. Then he took the crescents that were on the necks of their camels. An added bit of contextual, an interesting detail. With that, after seven years of oppression, some or all of the Israelites were finally free from the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people from the east. They no longer had to hide away their food and valuables from the seasonal invaders and moved a bit further away from the edge of starvation, all at the hand of Gideon, backed by a mere 300 troops. For this, they were extremely grateful to Gideon. It seemed like they were giving him the credit, not God. All of this despite God doing several things to show the Israelites they still needed to heed his word. Something about a horse and water fits rather well here. Back in the text, the Israelites were rather grateful and asked Gideon to rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us out of the hand of Midian. So, after decades, probably centuries, of being loosely organized tribes and families, some or all of the Israelite people were seeking a king who could then pass the title down to his son. There's a word for this. It's primogeniture. Some consider the earliest widely known example of this concept to be when Isaac thought he was passing his title to Esau. Of course, We know how that turned out. 
and that was many centuries before this incident. I may have more on that in the biblical rights of royal succession in the future, maybe when I get to King Saul, the first king of the united Israel, and still several centuries off. As for Gideon, he told the people, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Reverting back to the system Moses, then Joshua had put in the place. But all wasn't well with Gideon, as he did have a request of the people, asking something that's generally regarded as being self-interested. Gideon asked the people, Let me make a request of you. Each of you give me an earring he has taken as booty. The text adds a bit of clarifying detail, parenthetically telling us that the now-defeated enemies had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. More on what all of that means in the future. For now, know they were seen as being the sons of Ishmael, Abraham's oldest son. And remember, Ishmael, despite being the oldest, did not inherit his father's wealth. This was before the first recorded instance of primogeniture. The people told Gideon they would willingly give him what he asked for. They did this by spreading a garment on the ground, in my mind a robe, and each threw into it an earring he had taken as plunder. So many earrings were collected that the total weight of the golden earrings was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's about 685 ounces. At today's gold prices, that's over $1.2 million worth, with a whole host of caveats. Those caveats aside, no matter if you back into an ancient value, or use a modern one, or something between, it's still a sizable gift. It's also relayed that Gideon ended up with the crescents, pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, along with the collars that were on the necks of their camels. With some of the loot, Gideon made an ephod that was kept in his hometown of Ophrah. But it wasn't as reverent as it would seem, as the text makes it exceedingly clear with a particular word choice. All Israel prostituted themselves to it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So he took the spoils and created an idol. The message is further clarified in the section header found in the New Revised Standard, Gideon's Idolatry. The NIV is less confrontational, titling the same passage as Gideon's Ephod. While Midian had been defeated, the embedded message from God to the Israelites was lost on them. Despite this, the land had rest for 40 years while Gideon was a judge. In the last paragraph of Judges 8, in the last chapter on Gideon, his story is wrapped up and harkens back to his later name. Jeroboam went to live in his own house. He had 70 sons from his many wives. He also had a concubine who lived in Shechem, who bore him a son named Abimelech, which will become important in the next part of the judge's narrative. Sometime after this, Gideon died at what was described to be a good old age. He was entombed in his father's vault. As soon as Gideon had passed, the Israelites relapsed and prostituted themselves with the Baals, 
making Bel Beerith their god. Essentially, they managed to somewhat follow God through Gideon's life, but quickly reverted to the Canaanite pantheon. And it was even a small bit worse. While the Israelites did not remember the Lord their God, who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies, enemies that surrounded them, they were also not loyal to Gideon's family, despite everything he had done for them. And that's how his story wraps up, which would normally provide me with a good stopping point for the episode. But I still need to give a short programming note. This is the 300th episode, and therefore the last episode of this volume of the podcast. The hosting platform I use, Blueberry, essentially limits the series to 300 editions. What this means is I either begin to delete old episodes or start a new volume. And considering each month, even the first episode gets thousands of downloads for listeners just now finding the series. That wouldn't be the best of moves, so I've opted for a different strategy. Instead, a few weeks ago, I retitled this part of the podcast as Volume 1. I know, very creative. Starting with the next episode, Volume 2 begins, which places a burden on my listeners. You'll need to search out the podcast through your normal streaming service, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, iHeartRadio, whichever you use. As soon as you find it, you'll need to subscribe. And if you really want to help, leave a review for the new volume too, as it's considered a different podcast. And that's it. Pretty simple. Assuming you remember this next week when you try to download an episode and nothing is available. So it bears repeating. In fact, to make it easier, Before this episode drops, I'll upload a short intro episode to serve as a placeholder. It'll also serve the dual purpose of being an intro for those listeners who find that volume first. Right now, I don't even know what'll be in it. I'll figure that out soon enough. And that's it. Same podcast, Volume 2, and picking up with the judges found in the book with the same name. Specifically, wrapping up the story of Gideon. I'll be there next week. I hope you will too. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. And you know what to do next week. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.